Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum, the Technology Policy Institute's podcast. Today is Monday, December 6th, 2021. I'm Scott Walston, President of the Technology Policy Institute, and I'm here with my co-host, DPI Senior Fellow and President Emeritus, Tom Leonard. Today, we're delighted to have as our guest, MIT Sloan School of Management Professor Catherine Tucker. Professor Tucker is the Sloan Distinguished Professor of Management Science, Professor of Marketing, Chair of the MIT Sloan PhD Program, a co-founder of the MIT Crypto Economics Lab, which studies the applications of blockchain, and also a co-organizer of the Economics of Artificial Intelligence Initiative, sponsored by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Her research interests lie in how technology allows firms to use digital data and machine learning to improve performance, and in the challenges this poses for regulation. Professor Tucker has particular expertise in online advertising, digital health, social media, and electronic privacy. Her research studies the interface between marketing and the economics of technology and law. She holds a BA from the University of Oxford and a PhD in economics from Stanford University. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. So let's just jump right into it. You've done lots and lots of work on the role of algorithms in the online space and in the economy, even if your papers don't always necessarily have the word algorithm in them, although most do. So that's a big issue in policy today. There, People seem to come at many of the relevant questions with the idea that somehow algorithms are inherently bad. So tell us, before we get into your research specifically, what is an algorithm and what are the ways we should think about it? It's so wonderful you asked me this question because an algorithm is so simple to the point where it makes you wonder where, where we're sort of going with the policy debate. So an algorithm is basically anything I can use to aid me in decision-making. It doesn't even have to be digital. I could have in my head the algorithm that when I get lost, I always turn right, and that's the plan. So as we clear, an algorithm doesn't have to be digital. But usually when we're talking about algorithms in tech policy, we're talking about algorithms which use existing data or information to offer a better guide to what might be an appropriate prediction about what to do. A follow-up question, because I think a lot of the debate is going to be, and the policy circles is going to be about algorithmic discrimination. So how would you define algorithmic discrimination? I mean, aren't all algorithms in some sense supposed to discriminate in some sense? Well, maybe I'll describe this in two ways. First of all, the way I use algorithmic discrimination is simply in the way it's used in the policy debate. It's not an academic description. But instead, it reflects any time an algorithm seems to be making judgments or predictions, which will reinforce existing social inequality rather than ameliorating it. So that's a sort of simple working definition, which I think is helpful. There's two things I'll give you to sort of help see why, though it sounds easy on the face of it, it's not an easy definition. And the first is that... I think it's fair to say that the computer science literature has rediscovered an old literature in economics on statistical discrimination. And this is the really gnarly problem about, well, what do you do if you use data and the data says, if you discriminate in a certain way, you're going to be profitable, but the fact we're discriminating or the group we're benefiting or the group we're disadvantaging doesn't make us feel comfortable as a society. And as a result, you know, there's an old economics literature about this, which sort of try to think about how do we think of the trade-off between efficiency and equity in these circumstances. 
And I think it's fair that if you come across a debate called algorithmic fairness, it's basically rediscovering this problem that sometimes in certain scenarios, there's going to be this inherent trade-off between what we might think of as right and what we might think of as efficient. Now, reflecting this, I've just got to tell you this story there about algorithmic discrimination is I want you to imagine that the first time I ever presented my research on this topic to the University of Chicago, I casually was using the word discrimination as it's used in the policy literature. And as a result, what happened was that every single University of Chicago professor basically stood up one after the other to shout at me. And that's quite the event if you're an economist, basically saying, this is not discrimination, this is just efficiency. And how dare you label this as discrimination? You know, and in some sense, there was this embarrassing period after they shouted at me for 15 minutes where I sort of pointed out the question mark in my title, saying, is this algorithmic discrimination? No, that's what the entire paper's about. But I think it's fair to say from these sort of three points that we may have a working definition of algorithmic discrimination. We're still at the stage where academics are debating each other and really continuing a debate that's been going for many decades. One of the things that I really like about your research is that you ask these important questions and then find results that make a lot of sense, except we hadn't thought about it before. And often you provide ways of things you can do to address if there's an issue. One of my favorite papers of yours is the STEM advertising, online advertising bias. I know that paper is not your newest one, but if you could talk about that a little bit. I like the conclusions, how it shows unexpected ways of leading to something that people expect. And then maybe we can move on and talk a little bit about the role of how rules on advertising targeting affect consumer search. Well, of course. So actually, I'm glad you brought up that paper because you remember I told you I was presenting a paper and got shouted at by every single economist. It was that paper. Oh, it was that paper. It was that paper because, and you'll probably understand when I describe the paper why it sort of made economists go, but this is not discrimination, it's efficiency. So First of all, so this paper was set up as a really ambitious study. And I'll tell you what we were hoping to look at and then what we ended up looking at. So what we did was we started a Facebook ad in 190 different countries. And the ad was going to be promoting careers in science, technology, engineering, math, which you know has been traditionally an area where women are underrepresented. And what we had, the reason we decided to launch it in 190 countries was we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if the algorithm had picked up something about the degree to which females actually had opportunities and so on? It's a very sort of hypothesis you hear in the algorithm discrimination literature that algorithms pick up discrimination from a training data set and then perpetuate. So that was our plan. And so we ran this ad, and what we found was disquieting, and that we found that the ad was shown 20% fewer times to women than men. So we got the result that we were fearing we would get. But then we went to sort of look at the mechanism. And we sort of had some ideas in the literature about the mechanism. Like one idea was in some sense, maybe it was self-inflicted. Maybe women, if they saw the ad, didn't click on it, the algorithm learned that. No, that wasn't true. If the women ever saw the ad, they were more likely to click on it. And then we went, aha, well, it's definitely going to be then that the algorithm is picking up something about cultural prejudice. And so we then looked to see which countries where this was worse, expecting to see at least of all the countries where you associate with women having limited economic opportunities. And we saw the country where it was worse was Canada. And at that point, we thought, no, maybe your hypothesis is wrong. Maybe something else is going on. 
And then what we worked out was actually what was going on was that women have more expensive eyeballs than men. And that's particularly so in developed economies where traditionally marketers have assumed that women control a lot of the major discretionary household purchases. And so as a result, I'm so sorry, Scott, my eyeballs are just more expensive than yours. So as a result, the algorithm wasn't told whether to target to men or women. It was told to target to both genders. And it simply went out there and found the most inexpensive eyeballs, which happened to be male ones. And so this was a, an example where you have a disquieting result, which looks like algorithmic discrimination, an ad not being shown to women, which should be shown to women and being shown instead to men. But instead, it was just a result of the algorithm going out there and trying to save the advertiser a bit of money and being a cost-effective. So with a result like that, I love that paper too, because I like simple, intuitively appealing explanations that nobody's thought of before. But (laughs) with that in mind, if you were talking to, I mean, I know you've testified in Congress on this issue, and I do think that this is one of the hot issues in both Congress and in FTC and Department of Commerce. What would you advise them, if anything, to do? And what would you advise them not to do? Well, I think in some sense, not to do is the easier one. So why don't I talk about that? And then we we can go to the harder one, which is what to do. So I was writing this paper. And as you know, you, you sort of go through an academic review process. And the referees, and that's surely academic supervisors, told us to do two things. The first thing they told us to do was to show it wasn't just Facebook. And yes, guess what? We managed to replicate the result on Google, Pinterest, Instagram, just, you know, anywhere you might want, right? It was, it was a commonly, given it's coming through the fact that female eyeballs are more expensive, it's just, you just find it everywhere. The other thing that they asked us to do was to solve that we can solve it. And we said, oh, that's going to be easy to solve it. And in fact, this has sort of been our punchline when we've been presenting it. Because what we thought is that once you knew about our paper, the next step was easy, right? If you're a recruiter, and you really are intent on trying to advertise to equal number of men and women, then what you should do is pay more for female eyeballs and run a separate campaign, which is deliberately targeted to ensure you have more females there and you're paying more for them. And, you know, that always been a great implication. When we presented it to advertising executives, they were like, yes, that's going to be great practice. We will do that. And so we thought we were onto a winner here that we had a paper and a solution. And then the reviewers actually said, show us your solution. So we went to try and do it. And the idea was simply that we were going to run an ad and pay more for the women and less for the men. And we found we weren't allowed to do that. What had happened in the interim is there'd been, I think, some kind of lawsuit or pressure on Facebook, which meant that you could no longer target ads based on gender, uh, specifically to men or women. And so as a result, we couldn't solve it. And so we were almost in the worst possible place where you'd had some, I would say, analog era, well-intentioned regulation come in, say you can't change target on gender. But the moment you do that is the moment that you can't actually correct the problem. And so now anytime anyone runs an ad for a job on one of these major digital platforms, because they're not going to want, can't target by gender, in the end, you're going to end up with a situation where they're going to show it to more men. And so that's a sort of an example of what not to do. 
So just to restate, or actually you know, to say almost the same words, by making it not possible to target by gender, you've locked in discrimination against women for at least something like the STEM ad that you were talking about. Exactly. There's no way now you have correcting it easily. For me, that's just so striking about why we should all be very worried about piecemeal regulation, which comes in, sounds like a good idea, but doesn't really think about how algorithms are interacting with the broader context. We actually try to use your results also in our Twitter followers campaign, where there's a higher level question of whether any Twitter followers mean anything or Twitter means anything. But occasionally when we've tried to do this, we've made two campaigns, one for men, one for women, and spent $3 for every woman on, or it was a three for one ratio I think we used. And we found that our Twitter followers, at least according to Twitter, became more balanced. It was less tilted towards men. So, I mean, what you'd expect, but it did follow the results of your paper. It's wonderful. What's great is you can follow the results of my paper, right? Because you're ultimately a nonprofit looking for followers. <laughs> right. The problem is that the way the regulations be designed is that the people who can't follow my paper are the ones who are advertising in house housing insurance or jobs, mm-hmm. right? Maybe, and I'm not saying that obviously equal balance of gender is very important in technology's Twitter followers. But I must admit, it worries me a lot that these really important sectors can't actually do what you need to do to get an equal balance now. What do policymakers say when you bring that to their attention? Do they sort of not engage with it? Or it really goes against the narrative that so many have embraced? Right. I think it's fair. I always have papers like this. that I sort of present my result and then they can be interpreted through two very different lenses depending on what your partisan leanings are. In that I think it's fair to say that when I presented my results, the Republican-leaning people, the results were like, it shows you should never try and regulate. (laughs) Right? It just shows you should never regulate. And if you regulate, you're going to get in the way of cost savings for advertisers. So that was that one result. And then the result on the other side of the aisle is, oh, more regulation needed. That's a problem, right? You could take it both ways. I think it's just one of those papers which anyone, and I don't know if it's, it shows it's a good or a bad paper, but it's certainly one of those papers that people have used to support directly contrasting positions. Does that mean we're doomed to just reinforce biases? I think I'll you know, get back to being more serious, which is that what I've learned from this experience is that a lot of regulation right now doesn't actually understand, and I'm talking specifically about advertising, so much at the forefront of this debate doesn't really understand how algorithms work, how predictions work, how machine learning works, all this essential, these successful questions. And what we know as economists is that anytime you have regulation, which is specifically directed at a very piecemeal solution, there's going to be unintended consequences elsewhere. And that's what we've seen so far in this debate. I mean, you can imagine, like, as a policymaker, if it's put on your desk and it's like, do you want people to be able to target ads to women or men or exclude women, exclude men? No policymaker is going to say, yes, that sounds like a good plan. The problem is the consequences of that have been quite profound in that we've got this persistent imbalance now in how we can show ads to people who are looking for careers. Let me follow up on that. So you've pointed out, Areas like jobs and housing and things where we actually already have anti-discrimination laws and 
for good reason. But should we be concerned if there's an imbalance just for ads for regular products? No, I mean, look, we have, well, this is what's strange about my paper, right? Why do we have the situation where women cost more than men anyway? It's because just for whatever reason of cultural norms, women tend to be more in charge of big purchases and spend a more control of, of household finances and all of these things. And so it's completely rational. I want to be clear, this is completely rational. I've looked at data where people are selling stuff you really don't care about, like octopus-shaped kitchen gloves, stuff like this. You don't mind if men or women see different balances about it. And you see it persists there too. But the problem is, is because there are these spillovers and the fact that actually if you're an advertiser, and this is the sort of point of the study, if you're trying to sell octopus-shaped oven gloves, it makes more sense to target women. It's more cost-effective. They're more likely to convert all of these things completely rational. The fact you're paying more for those female eyeballs is then going to have spillovers from, I don't want to call a frivolous area of the economy, towards a really serious one. And I think we've never, ever had to confront this potential for spillovers between sectors where we don't care. In fact, we might think it's efficient for there to be different treatment agendas to sectors where we're like, oh no, that's terrible. Your paper on restrictions on advertising consumer search seems to get right to that because you used a very important part of the economy for that one, um, drugs and the FDA. Tell us a little bit about that paper. Right. So this, the moment you say that, Scott, I realized that you've noticed that all my papers sort of end up with this, ooh, that was unintended consequence. <laughs> so in this paper, we looked at what happened when the FDA sent a various sort of set of demands that the various pharmaceutical products stopped using paid search ads. And the issue is that if you've got a pharmaceutical product, then you'll know from the TV ads, you can have about half, half the time can be the good stuff. And then the half of the time is going to be telling you how it's all going to go dramatically wrong, right? That's just the way we've always regulated these things. And you can't really do that in a paid search ad effectively. So at the time, the FDA said, no, we can't do paid search advertising. And we looked to see what happened when you removed paid search advertising by the big pharma companies. And what we found was that you move that advertising, there's going to be something else. And the question becomes whether that something else is something which is good or bad for the economy or good or bad for consumer welfare. And this is what we found. And what displaced it was sort of community-led forums, sort of places where patients go to sort of discuss their symptoms. I don't know how we feel about that, but may or may not be a, a source of good information. But the other thing which we replaced it was Canadian pharmacies. And that's something where my colleagues in economics, such as Ginger, have written really good papers saying, actually, no, Canadian pharmacies, probably not the ones you want to be actually advertising if you're at the FDA. And so we went from this strange world where we removed these ads and with the attempt of trying to make sure that people seeking pharmaceutical information would see more balanced information. And we ended up in a world where all they saw was more biased information in the form of these Canadian pharmacy ads. And so, you know, it's another case where you try and restrict something, it sounds good on the face of it, but you're not thinking really what you're displacing. 
in that case, though, part of it was that there wasn't enough space in the display ad for them to display the warnings that were required, right? Or the side effects or something like that. So what would have been a preferable outcome in this case? To allow the pharmaceutical companies to advertise without having to note any side effects? Or I, I don't know what. Which is the better one for consumer welfare? Right. It's sort of got two options here, right? You either say no one is allowed to advertise against a pharmacist if someone's testing for a pharmaceutical product at all. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. That seems problematic potentially to me, though, from a free speech perspective. It also seems problematic because you're ignoring all the organic search results, right, which just exist. Or you potentially work with pharmaceutical firm companies and trying to find a way. We've got these regulations which were designed for a world of TV advertising or radio advertising, right? And then you try and think, well, how can we do this more effectively in a world where ads are deliberately sparse and constrained as they are on a search engine advertising world? Those sort of seem the two routes for me. I think the problematic route, though, is a route where you just take away the pay search ads from a specific small subset of firms and don't think about what's going to be appearing in their place. I mean, it seems to me, I, I can't recall this exactly if this is right, but it seems to me FDA regulations and print media, they said you had to list all the side effects and the pharma companies did that and people were free to ignore it. But then when it moved to TV, and if you applied the same requirements, people were not going to sit and have five or a minute or two of side effects read to them. So they adapted the regulations for TV, and I think there are less requirements for TV than for print media. And so maybe they can adapt them for social media as well. I'm pretty sure they're not the same for TV as they are for magazines, for example. One of the issues, the challenges here, right, is that if you think about paid search advertising in particular, it's designed to be unobtrusive. It's designed to be non-disruptive. That's why it works so well. And for all the other advertising media that they've regulated in the past, they're intentionally designed to be disruptive and so on. And so it's difficult, I think, for a regulator to get their minds around a very new format or way of doing advertising. And I find it strange to be saying new format way of doing advertising when we're talking about paid search, which has been around for two decades now. But I think, you know, we're still dealing with that kind of lag. Scott and I were talking about this earlier. There are people who would like to do away with the advertising-supported content on the internet. And I think it's not a trivial number of people. Well, I always find it really strange when we have these sort of debates in Washington, and you're in this world a lot more than me, where advertising is, I think, pre-thought of as obviously evil, obviously working against customers' own interests. Well, that's, that's not new. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, maybe, maybe that's not new, right? But if you think about why it is we want to get away with the advertising for the internet, it's because of that viewpoint, right? That advertising is something which definitely does utility. You know, and it's just strange as an economist, right, where we have all these models and we have all these studies about advertising as information. And a lot of the evolution of digital advertising has really been, in some sense, improving the informativeness of advertising for consumers. And so, you know, if you sort of go back to that 1950s model, 1950s writings, right, a lot of the things that people are worrying about are somewhat corrected in the digital world, right? Ads are less intrusive, ads are, you know, or at least less disruptive. They're a lot more informational rich and all of these kind of things. And so it's strange that we immediately presuppose that advertising is bad for consumers. 
And I think that's sort of the beginning and the end of this debate, right, about whether or not we should end the advertising supported internet. It sort of presumes that advertising in some sense of evil, which is not clear to me at all. In the 50s, I don't know this area well enough, I mean, advertising has always been used to support whatever the media is. I mean, people have never paid the full cost of newspapers or magazines. It's all also ad-supported. Was there, along with these beliefs that advertising was bad, were there also similar calls to not allow it in newspapers or magazines? Or is that a new part of the debate? I don't know if there's no reason why either of you would know that necessarily. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw, give credit to Tom in case he's got comments on the history, right? But certainly, if you look outside of the USA, there's often been attempts by state governments, at least, to limit advertising, right? I grew up in a country where government-supported media deliberately has no advertising, and the government says you can't have any ads to the other advertising channels, or at least they used to. I don't necessarily know if this paternalism is new, but Tom should comment. I don't know if people proposed. I mean, the concern, I think, has always been that really in one form or another, that advertising is basically manipulative. It doesn't provide genuine information to consumers, useful information to consumers. It just manipulates them. But I don't know whether in the 50s or earlier times, people were talking about prohibiting it in one form or another. I don't know the history that well. One thing which I always strikes me as a useful next step in this debate is to better identify what kind of ads we think of as a bad, Right. Again, this is my impression. I'm an academic. I'm not really that involved in debate. We go straight for the really horrible examples, like the things that we don't like, you know, such as payday lending or something which looks predatory, as you say, manipulative and deceptive. But it strikes me that actually focusing in on what we think of as the bad advertising that we don't like would actually help us then start to have a better quality debate rather than starting off this presumption that all advertising is bad. I'm not sure how we would define what is bad or good outside of some very extremes, right? Because we can't decide that for for content issues online. I mean, I guess that's why we have the First Amendment. Right. (laughs) Our default is to not block things, not not block speech. It is interesting to say something like advertising for crypto exchanges or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. That's an area where many digital platforms clamp down, right? They felt it was too profy, potentially too manipulative, all of these things. That's sort of like a nice example of a middle case, right, where it's less obvious, right? There's some products where you're like, no, no, we definitely don't want that advertised. That's definitely manipulative. But there's many things where there's a slight unease, but it's not clear whether or not you can put it in that bucket. But I understand, Scott, God, I hate, I think all economists hate binary buckets, right? But at least if we had more of a, a recognition that... There's a continuum, and we could identify what the axes were of the continuum, which meant it was advertising we didn't hear were great. Then we could at least have a sort of more sensible debate, which was not like, let's get rid of all advertising. So to really put you on the spot, if you were to design a research project to do that, to identify somehow empirically what is manipulative and what is not, to try to define that line somehow, how would you do it? What a lovely, interesting, inspiring question. And, you know, the answer to it is going to show why I'm a disappointing researcher in that basically my way of doing research, as you notice, is always very narrow, right? And so what I would try and do, for example, is say that crypto exchange advertising example I just gave, right? Do we see evidence that the ads... What I like about that is, you know, there are going to be some exchanges which are definitely more expensive, 
definitely less reliable, definitely potentially providing a lot more fake information. And do we see advertising working asymmetrically well for those less good players, right? That would be one sector, but I think those would be the sort of consistent number of facts we'd have to get in. Because what was sort of, in some sense, the presupposition of this debate is always that advertising is the friend of the bad players in the market. And that's not even clear to me as a sort of true starting point. So I'd probably start there. We are almost out of time, but I wanted to go to a slightly different issue just for a minute. You have a paper on the role of delayed data reporting and COVID, which seems particularly interesting and relevant because for those of us who have been obsessively checking the COVID statistics every couple of hours every day for the last 18 months, it's frustrating that we can't see it in real time, right? So tell us a little bit about what you did there and and what the implications of this lag are. Oh my gosh. So this is something I feel passionate about. And I I must at this point mention that I don't know if you've recently had a podcast with Joshua Gans, who wrote the first book really from an economist on this point of view. But he basically said, look, COVID is an information problem. And that seems very smart. And so we wrote this paper because me and my students were interested in digital data. We were like, well, is part of that information problem to do with digital data flows? And my gosh, one thing it led me to realize is that when you and I, I'm sure all of us were like, oh, is there going to be a Thanksgiving uptick? We're looking at the data. We don't realize that we're looking at the data from at least a week ago, 10 days ago. It's very, very slow. And what's even worse is it's slow in very unsystematic ways. There are some states where reporting is still happening via fax machine. I just want to just repeat that fax machine. And so as a consequence, we not only have huge delays, but we have unsystematic delays. And why is this important? Well, it's important, like let's imagine I'm running a statistical study. I'm trying to work out if mask mandates work, if other non-pharmaceutical inventions work. I'm doing it on the wrong data. I'm doing it with data if there's just this huge lag and we're trying to measure sharp policy effects. So I think this is we can't even begin to measure. I can't believe it. in 2021, I don't see ways, given the data we have on cases, that we can even now start to do typical economic evaluations of whether or not a policy works or not, because the timing's all awry. Is there anybody who's doing it right, either a state or a country, in terms of uh, data collection and distribution? Oh, I wish I could tell you that. I can tell you we're not doing it well. That's not, I wish not make it, but no, it's I not much of a surprise for anything. I wish I, I, wish I had the answer inspiring, like these countries are good at it and I should do that, but I don't know that right now. What is amazing to me though, and this sort of goes back to my old stomping round, is that the one thing I would notice, we looked into why it was that states would be using fax machines, right? And it actually ends up to be to do with legacy privacy regulations at the state level, where they've certified fax machines as being privacy compliant, so digital entry and a dashboard not being. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we can learn a little bit from that. I mean, has, for example, failure of tracking systems and maybe data reporting systems, how much of that is attributable to, if not regulations, just over-concern on the part of Google and Apple tried to set up a tracking system early? I don't think much came of it, I think. And maybe it was because they were overly concerned about privacy, so they came up with something that was not very useful. I mean, we do see some lingering effects of regulations, and a lot of it comes from what I'd say very old-school, analog-era concerns about how we report data. 
So, for example, there are various states at the beginning of the pandemic actually had more granular data reporting and it was more useful. And then they got rid of it because of trying to be more compliant with what they perceived of as privacy regulations. So we have seen those kind of movements. But again, the regulations, the sort of cases at the state level, it ends up being more of a case study. But in the case studies I've seen, it's because you've got 2000 era regulation trying to apply it to a 2021 scenario. So do you think, is that the main driver of the lack of real-time or close to real-time data? Or is it something else that we're just, it's not the way we're, we're used to reporting data. I mean, data from the agencies comes out a year late, which is, that's not a criticism because for most research, that's fine. And you want to get the data done right. But in this case, it was different. So is it because of legacy regulations or is it because we've just never bothered to set ourselves up the right way? Let's be clear. I've had such a career looking at how privacy regulations, which were made in the analog era, mess things up. You know, So that's one of the reasons I was looking at that. And I saw relationship with fax machines. But I want to be clear, you're completely right. It's not the major cause, right? We now have a pandemic and we have all the analytical tools which could allow us in theory to do far better data-to-data analytics than we've ever done before. Right, But that's just not the way we've ever set up how we do reporting. And maybe, Scott, what you're saying is like the inspirational thing, right? That we've, in the past, there's been nothing like this, right? No attempt to do real time. And so maybe we're going to learn from this the value of real time reporting. We hope. Uh, we hope. <laughs> Don't think harder about the implications. But no, you're right. I mean, let's be clear. We're sort of expecting agencies to do something that they were never built to do. Right. And actually, I mean, it seems like that should be one of the most important lessons from the pandemic is the importance of real-time data. I mean, we can try to prepare for things in advance, and we should, but nothing turns out to be exactly the way you expected. And the best you can do is try to adapt to it in real time. And if you don't have the information to do that, you won't be able to, right? So the thing we should learn is to have the information necessary to make good decisions when it happens. Let's be clear, you know, we've been talking about advertising. In advertising, in real time, I go to a website, like multiple bidders are going to be bidding for my eyeballs. They're going to know a lot about me. There's going to be real time integration assistance. All of this taking place in nanoseconds, right? We complain about latencies of fractions of seconds in the world of online advertising. And the fact we can be so good at doing real time in a world like online advertising, and that's my passion, something I've studied, ultimately less important than the public health crisis. We can see how real time data has transformed that part, part of our economy. And my gosh, I hope we learn that for public health. Right. I mean, it does seem like we haven't talked about that enough. So I hope more people read your paper and pay attention to that issue because it sure seems like you've identified something that has not been sufficiently explored in this pandemic. And- could have driven us to better policy. I don't know if it's optimistic you're saying could have, and I'm saying can. <laughs> um, it's probably saying something about where, where we both think we're going. Right. But yes, we're optimistic in our different ways. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll have another podcast in five years and you'll be talking about the whole new data collection, pandemic data collection system that's been set up in response to your paper. We'll be better placed next time, if there is a next time, which hopefully there won't be. <laughs> but so I think we're definitely out of time. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. It's always fun to talk to you. Oh, my utter pleasure. It's absolutely lo- lovely to get a chance to catch up. 